Section 10. The French Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The French Revolution by Hilaire Belloc. Section 10. Chapter 4. The Faces of the Revolution. 1. From May 1789 to 17th of July, 1789. The first point which the reader must hold in the story of the revolution is the quarrel between its first parliament and the crown. Of what nature was that quarrel? It was not, as it has sometimes been represented, a simple issue between privilege and a democratic demand for equality, or between traditional organs of government and a democratic demand for self-government by the nation. To imagine this is to read history backwards, and to see in the untried conditions of 1789 the matured results which only appeared after years of struggle. The prime issue lay between legality and illegality. The forms of French law and all the inherited method of French administration demanded a certain form of authority, a centralized government of unlimited power, the king was absolute. From him proceeded in the simplest fashion whatever will was paramount in the state. He could suspend a debtor's liabilities, imprison a man without trial, release him without revision of his case, make war or peace, and in minor details such as the discipline and administration of public bodies, the power of the crown was theoretically and legally equally supreme. It was not exercised as the enormous power of modern government is exercised. It did not perpetually enter into every detail of the life of the poor in the way in which the power of a modern English government enters into it. It is the very nature of such autocratic power that, while unlimited in theory, it is compelled to an instinctive and perpetual self-limitation, lest it break down. And autocracy may be compared in this to aristocracy, or more properly speaking, to oligarchy, the government of a few. For where a few govern, they know that their government reposes upon public opinion or public tolerance. They are very careful not to exceed certain limits, the transgression of which would weaken the moral foundation of their power. They welcome allies, they recruit themselves perpetually from other classes in the community. In the same way, an autocracy always has the desire to be popular. Its strokes affect the great and the powerful, and are hardly ever aimed at the mass of the community. The intellectual, the wealthy, the privileged by birth, fortune or exceptional personal powers, are suspect to it. As for the mass of men, an autocracy attempts to represent and, in a certain sense, to obey them. Now the French autocracy, for it was no less, erred not in the will to act thus popularly in the early part of the revolution, but in the knowledge requisite for such action. The Parliament shortly after it met, in May of 1789, began to show in the Commons part of it the working of that great theory which had leavened all France for a generation. The Commons said, We are the people, at once the symbols of the people, the direct mandatory servants of the people, and, though this was a fiction, we are of the people in our birth and origin. We are therefore the true sovereign, 
and the prince, the head of the executive, is no more than an organ of government, morally less in authority than ourselves, who are the true source of government. This attitude, which was at the back of all men's minds, and which was concentrated, of course, in the commons, clashed with legality. It could not express itself in the terms of law. It could not act, save in a fashion which should be, in the strictest sense of the word, revolutionary. Now the crown, on the whole, national in sympathy, and comprehending this new theory well, I mean by the crown the general body of advisers around the king and the king himself, was offended at the illegality, not of the theory or of the pretense, for these were not illegal, but of the action of the commons. And this comparatively small source of friction was the irritant upon which we must fix as the cause of what followed. The nobles, by 108 to 47, decided the day after the opening of the Parliament to sit as a separate house. The clergy, by a much smaller majority, 133 to 114, came to the same decision, but carefully qualified it as provisional. The Commons declared that the hall in which they met should be regarded as the hall of the National Assembly, and later made it their business, to quote the phrase of the motion, to attempt to unite in common all the deputies of the nation in that hall, and never to abandon the principle of voting individually, that is, not by separate houses, or the principle that the states general formed one undivided body. This attitude was qualified and compromised with, to some extent, in the days which followed. But it held the field, and while the commons were insisting upon this attitude as a moral right, the nobles countered by a reaffirmation of the right of each house to a separate judgment upon public matters. The nobles were standing upon legal precedent. The commons had nothing in their favor but political theory. If the orders sat all together and voted as individuals, the commons, who were in number equal to the other two houses combined, would, with their noble and clerical sympathizers, have a majority. Now the king and his advisers, notably Necker, who still had great weight, were by no means impossibilists in this struggle. They desired an understanding, and through the last days of May and the first days of June, the attempt at an understanding was made. But the attempt dragged, and as it seemed that nothing would come out of it, on the 10th of June, size moved that the assembly should verify its powers a French phrase for admitting and registering the presence of each member as acceptable to the whole body and to the theory of its constitution, and that this should be done in the case of each member, meaning members of all the three orders and not the common alone, whether the members of the two privileged houses were present or absent. The roll was called and completed on the 15th. None of the nobles attended the common roll call, three of the parish clergy, they were from the province of Poitou, did so, and thus admitted the right of the commons so to act. A dozen of their colleagues joined them later, but that was all. So far there had been no action which could be precisely called illegal or revolutionary. The commons had affirmed a right based upon a political theory which the vast majority of the nation admitted, 
and the legal depository of power, the king, had not yet reproved. One may draw a parallel and compare the action of the commons so far to some action which trade union, for instance, may take in England, some action the legality of which is doubtful, but upon which the courts have not yet decided. It was upon the 17th of June, two days after the completion of the roll call by the commons, that the first revolutionary act took place, and the student of the revolution will do well to put his finger upon that date, and to regard it not indeed as the moral origin of the movement, but as the precise moment from which the revolution, as a revolution, begins to act. For upon that day the commons, though in fact only joined by a handful of the clerical house, and by none of the nobility, declared themselves to be the National Assembly. That is, asserted the fiction that the clergy, nobles, and commons were all present and voted together. To this declaration they added a definite act of sovereignty, which trespassed upon and contradicted the legal authority of the crown. True, the motion was only moved and passed provisionally, but the words used were final, for in this motion the self-styled National Assembly declared that provisionally taxes and dues might be raised upon the old authority, but that only until the National Assembly should disperse. After which day, and here we reach the sacramental formula, as it were, of the crisis, the National Assembly wills and decrees that all taxes and dues of whatever nature, which have not been specifically, formally, and freely granted by the said Assembly, shall cease in every province of the kingdom, no matter how such that province may be administered. This is an allusion to the fact that in some provinces there was representative machinery, in others nothing but the direct action of the crown. The assembly declares that when it has, in concert with, not in obedience to, the king, laid down the principle of a national resettlement, it will busy itself with the examination and ordering of the public debt, etc., etc. Such was the point of departure after which sovereignty was at issue between the crown and the states-general. The crown, a known institution, with its traditions stretching back to the Roman Empire, and the National Assembly, a wholly new organ according to its own claims, basing its authority upon a political theory stretching back to the very origins of human society. The End of Section 10